Good morning, church. All right. Are we uh, are we on? We're good. Okay. Awesome. Um, this morning, we are looking at Psalm eleven. As we're preaching through the Psalms, we're almost done with the Psalms, all the way through Psalm 11. <laughs> Sarah liked that joke. <laughs> Only 139 left. Um, yeah, so we're going to go through Psalm 11. Um, let's read it together. Psalm 11, the Lord is in his holy temple. To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. These are God's words. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we um, dig into this text, that you fill my mouth, that it's your words being spoken, that we see your glory and that we see and uh, live the victory that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. This psalm, initially I was going to say that this psalm is about anxiety, but it's not. This psalm is about the victory that we have, the power that we have over anxiety. We're going to go through a a dialogue that David is having with himself. And we're going to see what his source of confidence is. We're going to see a challenge to that confidence. We're going to see the solution or the antidote to that challenge. And then we're going to see the hope we have through judgment and promise. So first, David makes a claim. In the Lord, I take refuge. This language of taking refuge, particularly taking refuge in God, is used 37 times in the Old Testament. 24 of them are in the Psalms. This is a theme that David uses repeatedly as a theme and a bedrock of his faith, taking refuge in God. He starts the Psalm with this statement of confidence. This is the flag that he's planting in the ground. In the next line, how can you say to my soul? Now, this doesn't usually happen, but scholars differ on who is saying this. Is it David himself? Um, Is this someone around him? Is it a friend or advisor? Is it an adversary or enemy? It could be Satan himself. I don't really think that the importance is on who is saying it. The importance is on David's acknowledgement and response to it. 
David is saying, how can you say to my soul, how can you, how can you challenge my essence, the source of my strength, with this challenge? This is an example of what we see in 2 Corinthians when Paul tells us to take every thought captive in 2 Corinthians 10. David is very confidently, very strongly, very poised in this presence, in this confrontation of a call to flee, a call to anxiety. In the next, the second half of uh, verse 1 through verse 3, depending on how it is viewed on who is saying, these words can be read a couple of different ways, but again, Despite the tone, the meaning is the same. Read from an adversary or a scoffer, this is a very diminutive, this is a very belittling call for David to flee like a little bird to the mountain. David is king. David is anointed by God. David is the one who killed lions and bears with his bare hand. And yet this call is saying, flee like a little bird like a sparrow to their nest. David had a lot of experience with mountains and hiding in mountains. We see in his flight from Saul, 1 Samuel 22, 23, 24, 26, of him hiding in mountains. When he was fleeing from his son Absalom, again, he flew to the wilderness to, to, to hide in the mountains. Mountains represent a couple of different things in Scripture. We see in Exodus. Um, we see in, I believe it's Mark, when Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration. Mountains are an elevated place. It's a symbol of bringing our attention above normal life to, play, to posture ourselves for worship. That's one image of mountains in Scripture. But there's another way that Scripture engages with mountains, and that is as a temporal power that exceeds man, but not God. In Matthew 17, Jesus says that if we have the faith of a mustard seed, we can call to that mountain and have it thrown into the ocean. In Revelation chapter 6, the wicked are calling for the mountains to fall on them to hide from the Lamb of God. Mountains represent, in this passage, a temporary, a temporal hiding place. The mountain is put here in contrast to refuge. David, in the opening line, is saying, in very concrete terms, that the Lord is my refuge. It's a very present statement. And yet the call at the end of verse 1 is to run away, to flee to seek your own safety, to take safety into your own hands and take it away from God. Verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the challenge. This is the reason that David is having his attention drawn to why he should be afraid. 
the all of this language is it's all hypothetical it's all anticipatory it's all ethereal it's not real they have bent the bow the bow has not been released they've fitted their arrow it's not in flight to shoot that's a looking ahead to the actual act if the foundations are destroyed our anxiety oftentimes comes in response to the unknown anxiety is a fear that things are out of control more specifically things are out of our control Anxiety is something that we have a lot of evidence when we turn on the news, when we turn on social media, we have a lot of evidence to support the idea that we should be anxious. Right? And that's the language that's being used here. Whether it is an adversary, whether it's a spiritual satanic attack, whether it's just the difficulties of life. This is an unknown assailant. This is a, a, a surprise attack. This attack is coming from the dark. We don't even know who the assailant is. We don't know who the attacker is. We don't know what the scope of the attack is. The scariest enemy is the one that you don't see. right? There is this idea of terrorism, which we have lived with in our country for the past 25 years. We're obsessed with the unknown threat. And that goes from a societal, cultural, political level all the way down to the personal. But we are not left helpless. In verse 2, the wicked bend the bow to shoot arrows at the upright. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 to take up the shield of faith which extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Church, what are the foundations that we're building our life on? Our anxiety is a response to our foundation being threatened. If our foundation is security, it doesn't take much for security to dissolve. If our foundation is approval, all it takes is an argument. All it takes is a negative comment on social media. All it takes is one bad interaction that threatens your standing with the people you're trying to approve, to seek approval from, to put us into a cycle of anxiety. Maybe our foundation is control. then we will dominate and manipulate all the people around us to maintain control, or we will isolate ourselves and insulate from any threat of that control being removed. Anxiety is a poison that focuses us on ourselves and not on God. Anxiety causes us to live 
in a way, Evan last week gave us the language of practical atheism. And maybe we heard that and said, my life needs to look more religious. I need to spend more time reading the scripture. I need to spend more time praying. I need to spend more time spreading the gospel. And that's perhaps that's true, and that's good. I'm not trying to diminish any of that. But another way of living practically as an atheist is to live in anxiety, to live in fear, to live as a victim. Church, we need to we need to be convicted. We need to step away from victim mindset and victim language in our faith of being under spiritual attack, of getting through the week, of this sense of just barely hanging on. And I think part of that is based on how we view salvation. Our story, our testimony should be I have been saved from, I have been purified, I have been redeemed, instead of I used to do this, I now believe in Jesus, I chose Jesus. If I chose Jesus, my grip is weak. I've dealt with tendonitis in my arms, and so I know what it feels like when your grip is gone that you used to have. Our grip is weak. But if Jesus saved me, it's his strength that keeps me secure. Church, we need to stop living as Saturday night Christians and start living as Sunday morning Christians. Our Savior is alive. Our Savior lives. Our power comes from the resurrection of Jesus. The attack that we're looking at in verse 2 and 3 should not have an effect on us, as we'll see in verse 4. David, there's a build. There's a, there's a frenetic build in the pace and in the tone and in the grammar and in the language of verse 2 and 3 of this cycle. And that's what anxiety does. It, it ramps itself up constantly. How many nights have we stayed in bed laying there unable to sleep because our brain is racing? The same thought cycling over and over again, agonizing over conversations that haven't happened, people that we haven't talked to. There's the person saying this is consumed with the anxiety that they're talking to David about. But in the Lord, I take refuge. David already defeated the argument of verse 2 and 3 in his opening statement. Church, this is why we're doing catechism. David has already built for himself a system of belief. This is, a, this, is, this is implied history of his experience with God. This is a demonstration of the truth that he has come to learn. I take refuge in the Lord. It's just a statement. It's not an argument. It's not an explanation. It's not a description. It's a starting point. So when anxiety comes, he's already, he's already defeated it. Then we get to verse 4. Right after the end of verse 3, which asks this question, what can the righteous do? Now again, this is very unlike scholars, but there's disagreement on who the righteous is. 
this could be read as what are the righteous to do? What is it possible for the righteous to do? In the, in the face of the foundations being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we as believers in God do against this impending doom? This can also be read as what has the righteous done? And in keeping the language with this psalm, we are referred to as the upright. The righteous refers to the Lord. And I think, though, I think it's helpful to look at both angles of that question. What can we do? Nothing. We are helpless. What has the righteous done? Meaning the Lord? He has done everything. Even in times when it doesn't look like it. This verse, this question, can be read as a challenge to the authority and control and sovereignty of God. And in verse 4, we see the rebuttal to that. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. We have this anxiety. We have this, this freneticism, this, this chaos. And then verse 4, concrete, solid, still. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Everything about that two-part statement, the grammar, the pace, it's solid. There's nothing changing about it. David is also equating the temple and the throne. In heaven, there is no separation of church and state. The power to affect change is the same power that preserves our souls. In Scripture, we have several views, glimpses into heaven. We have Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. And I include that because that's pre-fall. So that is life in existence with God the way He originally intended it. We have Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28 where God is standing in authority. Moses and the elders in Exodus 24 see God's power. Moses again sees the most of God that any human has seen. We see, he sees the back of God. Micaiah, which was less known to me anyway, but I feel like is a less known example, Second Chronicles 18, who sees the throne of God. Isaiah in chapter 6 gives us a very detailed view of the throne room of God in which exists the temple. Ezekiel in chapter 1 and 10, Daniel in chapter 7, Stephen in Acts 7. Paul refers to a man in 2 Corinthians of who was brought to the third heaven and was told things that are not utterable by man. And maybe the most famous, John in Revelation 4, gives us a vision of the throne room of heaven. And church, I challenge you, I encourage you to go through and just pull out and read those chapters of the visions of heaven. Because as I was preparing, I was reading those, researching, studying what heaven is like, what God is like. What does it mean that His temple and throne are the same? 
And it changes you. It, it changes your heart to have those visions of heaven, to feel the weight and the power of God. The language in verse 4 is in direct refutation, directly attacks the challenge in verse 2 and 3. The foundations that are being destroyed in verse 3 are in direct contrast to the temple and the throne of God that will never be shaken, that cannot be shaken. They are transcendent, they are unaffected. Nothing that happens here will ever affect what happens there. His eyes see. There is no darkness that an enemy can hide and shoot from that God cannot penetrate with his gaze. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. He sees everything. There is not an injustice, there is not an oppression, there is not a scheme that God does not see or know about. God sees us and knows us, every single person. His eyelids test us. We have this language of being tested and refined. In Isaiah 48, he writes, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in a furnace of affliction. We have many passages talking about our faith being tried, being refined, being sent through the furnace, which the more valuable a metal is, is how pure it is. And the way that a metal is purified is being, is being burned because all of the impurities burn away and the metal remains. So we have Isaiah 48, we have 1 Peter 1, we have James chapter 1, we have Proverbs 17, Zechariah 13, Psalm 66, Psalm 139, Malachi 3. Reminders that life is not easy. Sometimes when life is hard, God is testing us. God is refining us. Our faith needs to be challenged, to be purified, to be deepened. Whether it is an attack from the enemy, whether it's just life being hard. Church, just because we can walk in victory doesn't take away the pain of life. It doesn't diminish the difficulty of it. It doesn't diminish the, the, the pain but it does give us what we need to get through it. His eyelids test the children of man. Verse 5, he, Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So he sees and tests everybody. But now we're being broken up into two categories. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So we're all sent through the fire. For those of us who are believers, we're being refined. For those of us who are not believers, we're being, that testing reveals to us our sin and calls us to Him. When David says that God's soul hates the wicked, he's talking about an essential to the core of his being, a hate, a um, his detesting of sin and wickedness. A hatred of the love of violence. And in verse 6, Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. 
David's calling for judgment. He's saying that this is right for them to experience this. This is images of Sodom and Gomorrah when we see God's judgment on earth. Sin is not a, a, sin is not a, a small thing. God takes sin very seriously. The cost of sin is ultimate. But I thought God loved everybody. I thought God wanted everybody to be saved. How can he hate the wicked and yet want everyone to come to him and to love everyone? How can he hate and love at the same time? Thank you for asking. The reason that he can hate the wicked and still have love is because of the cup. Church, he would not be a refuge for us if he did not hate the wicked. If he didn't hate wickedness, there would be no safe place for us to run to. The cup is his judgment. David is calling for the cup of judgment on the wicked in verse 6. But we see the cup mentioned in other places in Scripture. We see it in Matthew 26. We see it in Mark 14. We see it in Luke 22. When Jesus prays for the cup that he was about to drink to be removed from him, the judgment that we were supposed to drink, Jesus drank for us. So all of the judgment, the coals and the sulfur and the scorching wind in verse 6, fell on Jesus so they don't have to fall on us. That is how He can love all of us. That is how He can desire for all of us to go to Him and yet still hate our wickedness. That is how He can be love and just. So, this is the grand switch. This is the great substitute. We're in, the, we're, in the, we're in the conference room. We're making a deal. On the table is a cup and a robe. The cup is ours. That's the judgment. The robe is Jesus. That's His righteousness. We're supposed to drink the cup and He's supposed to wear the robe. But He reaches across the table and takes the cup. And then he hands us the robe. That is the great substitute, is we wear his righteousness while he took our judgment. Thank you, Jesus. For the Lord, verse 7, is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Who are the upright? Who are the ones that get to be called upright? We see that in verse 2. We see it again here. The upright are those who choose to accept God's gift of grace. The upright are those who follow God. The upright are the ones who place their foundation on the throne room of God's holy temple. 
Abraham was counted righteous by, by his faith. There's one thing that Jesus asked of his disciples to do that he never had to do, and that is repent. Repentance is the thing that allows for us to be able to wear the robe of righteousness. Our lives ought to be marked, are commanded to be marked by repentance. It is the only thing that allows our sin to not become our anxieties. It is the thing that allows our foundations to remain where they belong. Proverbs 28 tells us not to conceal our sin, but to confess. John the Baptist in Matthew 3 calls us to live a life of repentance, to prove our faith, to show the fruit of our faith by repentance. James chapter 5 says, confess our sins to each other. Repentance should be a continual posture of our lives, individually but together. We should be living in a way where, like we said before, should be marked by the story of how we have been freed of our sin. So we don't hide from it. We don't hide our sin from each other, from the world. Our sin is our story. Our sin is our need for a Savior. And our sin is the proof that, God, that Jesus has saved us. Isaiah 64 says that our good deeds are as filthy rags. The, that our best intentions are sinful. What we try to do in righteousness, the way we try to be righteous, is sinful. There shouldn't be an interaction that we have, whether it's a Sunday service or being together throughout the week, where repentance is not part of our regular rhythm of engagement. Repentance doesn't always have to mean this sense of trying harder not to sin. Repentance is not, I'm going to try really hard not to do that again. Repentance is refocusing where we're putting our foundations. Which allows us to not have to hide our sin. If we don't think we have anything to repent of at any given moment, then you should repent. Repent of self-righteousness. The psalm ends with a promise for the upright, for those who practice repentance, for those whose foundation is in God. And this promise is our ultimate hope. It's our ultimate victory. It's our ultimate confidence that the upright shall behold God's face. We already said that Moses is the one who came the closest. 
as a living human. And in one sense, we do. In one sense, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the resurrection of power of Christ in us right now. But there is a temporal and an eternal aspect to this. For eternity, after, we, after Christ comes back, after we die, we will live in un, uninhibited access to the face of God. We will live in perfect communion with God. And the more that we understand, to the, to the degree that we understand the depth of this promise, will change how we live this life. Because this life is short. The pain that we experience now is real, it's deep, but it's short. Eternity is long. So, family, let us take refuge in God. Let us live Sunday morning lives. Let our foundations be God's throne and holy temple. And let's live for the promise of beholding his face. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we have confidence. Thank you that we have victory through you. I pray that these words that were spoken were your words. I pray they penetrate our hearts. I pray that they change our lives and that you use us to, to grow your kingdom this week and to allow the freedom and confidence that we have to spread to others. In Jesus' name, amen.